Welcome to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast, where we inspire collaborative thinking, improved outcomes, and business success with today's most successful and inspiring healthcare leaders and influencers. And now your host, Saul Marquez. Outcomes Rocket listeners, welcome back once again to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast, where you could tune in to listen to today's most interesting and influential healthcare leaders. I have an outstanding guest for you today. Her name is Amanda Goltz. She is the Vice President of Digital Innovation at BTG. She leads BTG's global digital innovation portfolio from experimental pilots to fully commercialized partnerships. Her objective there is to source emerging solutions from the global health innovation ecosystem to both support the internal interventional medicine and oncology businesses, but also move beyond the pill to offer wraparound services for provider, patient, and payer. Amanda's got an extensive history in healthcare and a very unique experience, but what I wanna do right now is, is flip over the microphone to her so she could round out her experience and anything that I may have missed. Amanda, welcome to the show. Thank you all so much. I'm very happy to be here, and hello to everybody listening. Thanks for joining in. What got you into the medical sector? Oh gosh, great question and a very funny story. Um, so it, it, this, will, this will exactly pinpoint my age, but when I was growing up and I was in grade school and high school, it was the height of the AIDS crisis. And I decided that I was going to become a doctor and I was going to cure AIDS. The only problem with that is that I do not at all have the intelligence or the skills to become a physician. I uh, went to college, I was pre-med, I was very excited and organic chemistry did exactly what it's supposed to do, which is weed out those who can <laughs> from those who cannot. So uh, being one of those who cannot, I, I tried to figure out what else to do. Um, I studied political science with a healthcare focus. I said, all right, well, if I can't deliver clinical care, I want to understand how this system works. Um, and I, I followed that chain through, um, eventually went to graduate school for healthcare policy and finance. And I think the finance part is particularly important because as we'll probably discover later in the conversation, the way the money moves through the healthcare system is really revealing as to what the incentives, disincentives, and resulting outcomes are. And I've sort of made a study of that in my career as I've moved from the payer side to the provider side to the purchaser side, and finally I'm on the industry side. And, and what I've learned and why I'm really glad that I chose that particular area of study is I think it, it set me up well to take a system perspective on healthcare and understand the interaction between the players and how that, that drives the outcomes we want or do not want. Super interesting, Amanda, and and I'm I'm fascinated by by the way you 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 took on this pursuit. Uh, nevertheless, you know while while that org, organic chemistry exam got you out of the out of the uh, uh, practitioner side, you still had this drive to to answer a calling to to somehow help the system and improve outcomes. And I think that's the one thing that that I really love about you. You, you just kind of have this passion to understand this detective type of mind and and uh, you took the financial approach and and uh, I think what you say is is super interesting that that the way the money flows will point to where the priorities are. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much for those kind words. You know, I think what always struck me about healthcare and and the the concept of health and disease is sort of the same thing that as a kid inspired me about um, wanting to work on, on the AIDS crisis, which is, it's that it seems terribly unfair, doesn't it? If you look at it the it way really a child does. does, you know, why should a virus, which is barely even human life, like textbooks disagree as to whether it's classified as life or not, be able to totally, you know, 
kick the behind of human beings. It makes no sense. We're so much more complex and bigger and intelligent and capable. And we've made whole systems and countries and global <laughs> nations. You know, why should that be? Why should we be at the mercy of a string of RNA? And if you, if you think about it, I, that's sort of the way I think about disease, especially preventable disease. We have the tools to do something about it. Why do people still die of things we can prevent? It's such an interesting question. It really is. You know, and, and I, I love when, when I'm, I'm speaking with somebody like you, Amanda, and, and just kind of like tackling issues that are much bigger than ourselves, you know, and, and, and with healthcare, we're, we're in that spot and, and we could, we could point to a lot of different problems and a lot of challenges in our system. But what would you say a hot topic that you feel should be on every medical leader's agenda today? And how are you and, and your organization tackling that? Yeah. So I think, you know, the, the, the biggest hot topic I think is the cost crisis in American healthcare. And I, I should preface my remarks by saying that, you know, I, I sort of came up studying the American healthcare, healthcare system, which is sine qua non. There's nothing else like it. It's completely unique in many ways, both good and bad. Um, I might work for a global company and my digital efforts for that company are global. But when I think about commercial models, I often think about the US system because that's the most complex. You know, usually sure. in other national healthcare systems, if you do something that helps somebody feel better for an acceptable cost, generally that's what works. Not always true in the US. And so, so right. that's sort of where I, I naturally regress to. Um, so if I, don't, if I don't specify, I'm talking about the US. Got it. Um, I think, so the hot topic there is, you know, there's been a cost crisis in American healthcare for, for a long time on a slow burn and we're a little bit like the frog that's being boiled alive and since the water is increasing by degrees of in increments, we don't know that it's happening to us. Um, and there's wide debate over when that point will be, but there's no debate that there won't eventually have to be some sort of massive reckoning. It's 20% of GDP, we can barely pay for it as it stands today, and there's sort of no relief in sight. So not to mention, you know, we're, I don't, somewhere really down in the doldrums globally in health outcomes for our own population. So something must be done. Now, I would say that the, the, the concrete way that a, that a healthcare organization leader could think about this is, all right, no matter what the details of a changing payment system must be, what is it that I do in this complex system and who can I partner with upstream from when I usually see the patient and downstream for when they leave me, and I'm using patient to mean consumer, insurance, covered life, whatever it might be, such that I'm extending my sphere of influence upstream from when I usually get the person in my responsibility and downstream from when they usually leave me. And the reason I, th I would say focus your attention there is because no matter what the details of the particular payment change might be, no matter what the rules of the game are, that is the competence that will enable you to stay alive. Because for so long, we've focused on really siloed care, right? The insurance yes. company has you as long as you have your job. The hospital has you as long as you have the episode of care. Your doctor sees you until they refer you to somebody else. Any way that we're going to evolve the payment system is going to have to do with preventing bad things from happening and making sure the patient is healthier and uses fewer healthcare resources after seeing you. The only way you can do that is by partnering to extend your influence over what happens in both directions. So I think some of the smartest and savviest organizations that we're tracking are doing exactly that. They're, they're, they're trying to partner with people who are gonna take responsibility for the, the person after the episode of care. They're trying to partner with people who can prevent episodes of care that are unnecessary or preventable. And they're trying to collect as much data as possible about exactly what happens step to step to step to step before symptoms occur and way after, in, in multi-years after the intervention and what has resulted. And there's, there's a ton of forms that can take, but, but that's where I would look because I think that's 
the core competency that will enable you to succeed and is going to be much more profitable and easier, frankly, than trying to guess at exactly what the game will be. That's really interesting, Amanda. So, so rather than just taking the traditional, you know, fee-for-service approach, taking the, um, uh, just the bird's eye view in the upstream and downstream and, and, and partnering with, with, with institutions, businesses, people that can help you encapsulate and really uh, truly take charge from uh, even before the patient's sick to if they do end up needing treatment uh, in this way, then collecting data in order to understand everything better to, to get a better grasp on it. Exactly. And if I know I'm going to have to partner with those folks, what makes a good partner? What's the right data to capture? And how do I know whether I'm successful or not? So mm -hmm. I can give a couple examples. In, sure. In, I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear one. Sure. In, I'll, give, I'll give three from three sectors of, of the healthcare system. So you know, there's, there's a very obvious one that has been happening for a while with employers. So employers, uh, generally, if they're fairly large, over about 3,000 employees or so, self-insure, which means that they use an insurance company for all the things you use an insurance company for. But at the end of the day, the entity paying the bill for the doctor or for the hospital or for whatever care the employee needs, if they receive benefits from the employer, is actually that employer, not the insurance company. So it's a different risk model. The employer is actually bearing all the costs for those employees, not the, the insurance company. And the reason this makes sense for the employer is, in general, if I have a population of working adults healthy enough to have a full-time job, I'm pretty much beating the risk pool of the health plan, right? So it makes more sense right, for me right. to pay the bills rather than pay a premium. Sometimes, sometimes not. There are exceptions to that. So mm -hmm. one example of the phenomenon that I'm talking about, the competence that I see smart organizations collecting in the employer world is a simple one. All right, employers have done everything they can to make their buildings, their facilities, as healthy as possible. We have healthy lunches and we have gym classes on site and we encourage you to walk. What about the other 16 hours of the day when the person is not with you, right? What, what do we do there? And so the employers have started to think about helping people have Fitbits to track their activity or giving them free gym memberships to go on their own time or uh, packages and, and educational programs that help people understand sun safety during the summer or home safety because a, a remarkable amount of injuries happen in the home. And these have met with varying success because engagement is difficult. But the recognition there is if I'm an employer and I pay for all of your healthcare, I need to be helping you be healthy at every point in your life, whether you're with me at work or not. And I think that's sort of a fundamental breakthrough. You know, there's some questions about efficacy and privacy, but those are always true. Um, and so I think that that basic recognition and the partnership of employers with healthy organizations, not just sensors and trackers, but patient engagement and, and massive data platforms that can give them insights into which of their employees are likely to develop you know, unhealthy habits that they will then need help with, I think is a, a sort of profound insight. Another example from the acute care world is hospitals are starting to really develop good partnerships and get in data analytics programs that help them understand what happens to my patient after discharge. What makes a COPD patient exacerbate their pneumonia and have to come back within 30 days and hospitals have a readmissions penalty from CMS for um, COPD and, and three other conditions? What happens to my patients when they go home and they don't clean their surgical wound and it becomes infected and they have to come back for uh, a second surgery? And they're sort of feeling out not just affiliations with other healthcare delivery facilities like skilled nursing facilities, step-down home care nurses, et cetera, but also other newer entrants into the healthcare space that are helping them understand what actually happens to the patient's home. What small changes could we make in the patient's environment that will help them adhere to their medications? What data could we track where we can say, you know, I don't really like that cough and the color of your sputum. 
I'm going to call in a change in your meds and have it delivered to your house to hopefully avoid the pneumonia that's happening. And the hospitals are trying to develop competence around which of those interventions are helpful, which matter the most, and which patients are most likely to do. And then once they've developed that sort of level of understanding, they're able to choose the best partners from this rapidly emerging world of solutions. Yeah, that you know, and, and the and the one thing that that uh, that you kind of mentioned here, Amanda, is is you know, in these different situations, is what 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 questions are you asking? Because you know, outcomes rocket listeners, if you if you noticed, uh, Amanda kind of takes a unique approach to these different scenarios, and and the questions that she asks about each of these are are what's going to drive the results. And so, Amanda, what kind of uh, what kind of advice or or tips would you give to to the listeners for asking the right questions? Yeah, so it's another fantastic question. Um, I think <clears throat> that there is, we're still in a little bit of a wild west mm -hmm. um, in looking at these things because it's still very new. People are still experimenting to figure out what really makes a difference uh, because we have a very poor history of tracking outcomes in the U.S. in general. All the data that we've collected is about exactly what you would expect in a fee-for-service world. The data right. is what was done and what was paid for, not what happened, right? right. I, I have a famous story of a... Um, a time when I worked back in an academic teaching hospital, uh, and this is not a, not to be taken as a as a as a slight on that hospital, which delivers absolutely world class first class care. But I was very involved in quality improvement efforts there, trying to be even better than the 90th percentile. And one of those was making sure that um, surgeons followed the guidelines for surgical procedures at all times. And I once had a cardiac surgeon who is that's an intimidating specialty mm -hmm. uh, look me in the eye and say that was a perfect surgery. And I said, you know, oh, really, doctor? And, and he said, yes, I followed the guidelines perfectly. And I had to say, but doctor, the patient died. And his point was, I did absolutely everything that is perfect clinical care. My point was, the outcome is exactly what you do not want. And right. that, to me, really illustrates the difference between clinical guidelines and quality measures, which are very good things, and we have a wide body of measurement on them, but they still don't track what happened. They just don't. They track the things the doctor did or the things the care team did. Very few of them are true outcomes measures in the sense of <coughs> what is the patient's A1C, a diabetic patient's A1C today? How quickly was the patient able to recover normal daily function after their hip replacement? What is the patient's scoring on the validated instrument for depression, the PHQ-9, six months, 12 months, and 18 months into a behavioral health intervention? Those are true outcomes measures, and we're really, really bad at those. We're trying to develop them, and it's very well and good to say uh, uh, we're going to deploy those, but we are using a very blunt way of evaluating them now. Did it work or did it not? And when you only have yes or no, you're not really able to sort through your potential partners with a very fine-grained comb, right? Because you only mm -hmm. have works didn't work, not worked better. So on the science of what worked better, I think my advice would be there are three components to any intervention that is not a clinical intervention, you know, digital intervention, if you will, or, or um, anything that tries to, to, to drive to a particular outcome for a patient. One is engagement. You've got to sign the patient up and get them to do whatever it is you're asking them to do, right? They're, they're sort of not passive vessels. If you want them to answer right. a short quiz every day on their, the, the quantity and quality of their cough, then you're going to give them, have to give them a reason to do that because nobody sits at home and does it. Um, so engagement is number one. Number two is the, the comprehensiveness and efficacy of the intervention itself. One of the challenges, by way of example, that we've seen in medication adherence apps is the medication adherence intervention assumes that the reason you have not taken the med is you forgot. 
And so all of the things that the app is trying to get you to do, or the intervention is trying to get you to do, is to remember to take it. Turns out, a lot of the reasons why people don't take their medications is not that they forgot, it's that they didn't get a refill, or it makes them nauseous so they don't take it, or it makes them sleepy and their grandkids are coming over today, or they mix it up with another drug and they thought they took it, or any number of other things. And the problem is the intervention doesn't address that. It's not personalized enough to be able to adapt to what is really going on. And it just keeps sending the same blind signal over and over again. So the second piece of advice I would say is really look for the flexibility and personalization of that particular intervention. Doesn't always mean that a human has to do it. There are some really smart AI powered uh, interventions that can adapt and branching uh, decision-making where it says, is this the problem? No, okay, is this the problem? No, okay. So there's, you know, the tech is there. I'm not, I'm not so this should not be taken as um, a machine can't do it, only a human can. That's not what I'm saying at all. But it does have to be flexible, adaptive, and responsive to the individual. So now we have engagement, we have personalized level of the intervention. And then the third, and this is the, the most obvious and yet the most underperformed of all three pieces, measurement. What is it you're looking for? And can you actually gather that data? So you know, some, sometimes this is fairly obvious. If we're trying to get people to lose weight, we send them a Bluetooth scale, they step on it, and the weight is transmitted. Some of it's really hard. Were you readmitted or did you have to go to the emergency room? Which means I need to collect data from all the emergency rooms in the area to understand that, right? Not just one hospital. Um, how was your functional status? Sometimes people's level of disease is, is so severe that a Fitbit can't detect uh, the, the, small, the small but very positive changes in physical activity they're able to take. So what kinds of sensors maybe in the home would we need to be able to measure things like that? And I think a lot of people are, are just saying, okay, well, if we do A and B, outcome should be better, but that's not enough. You really have to measure that whatever change it is you were looking for actually happened, because that's the only way you'll be able to refine and say, well, we didn't see outcome A, but we did see outcome B. So what does that mean about our engagement in our intervention? So I went on a little bit too long there, but I think those would be the-, the <laughs> No, this the, is good. This is great, Amanda. And, and I, I like the focus that you have on, on these three things, you know, uh, engagement, flexibility, personalization, and measurement. And as we, you know, we, we make a lot of assumptions in, in healthcare. And if we, if we took a minute to, to question our innermost assumptions, you know, we I had an interview with, um, with Anita Promota. She's uh, uh, the ex-CFO of, uh, of Epic. And she brings this up, and I think you two have, have uh, uh, similar thought patterns in common, Amanda. It's like, you know, question your innermost assumptions. And if you, if you look to focus your, your questions, I know Amanda went, went through this, uh, you know, what are you doing about engagement? You know, what assumptions are you making about engagement? What assumptions are you making about your flexibility and your personalization of your care? And what assumptions are you making, finally, about measurement? And question those and start seeing what you're actually after uh, and I think uh, this is just a, a great, uh, great run through, Amanda, that, that I think will will create a lot of things for our listeners to think about as you as you uh, do your your current uh, work at uh, at BTG. What, what would you say an example of how the organization has created different results by doing things differently and questioning assumptions? Yeah, I think, well, we've taken that sort of rigor very much to heart. Um, <clears throat> we apply those three principles to everything we do and i think that we're able to avoid a lot of pitfalls that that sometimes our, our colleagues and peers fall into um we don't you know just build things assuming people will come right they'll build it and they will come fallacy we, we really try to use rapid prototyping and and other uh techniques that we've taken from the startup world to make sure that before we spend dollar one investment you know building something fancy or hiring a bunch of coders 
that we've run it through an actual user acceptance and testing process to see if it's really going to make a difference and it's what people want. The second thing we do is we don't do a digital initiative unless it has value for the payer, provider, and patient. And that's a super easy thing to say and a really, really hard thing to do, especially in a healthcare world where often what's good for one is terrible for the other two and vice versa. And that's exactly how you make your money, right? right? So, <laughs> so that's, it's harder than it sounds. But what, what's really great, if you get it right, if you, if you design something that the patient wants, the doctor wants, and the payer wants, is that adoption is almost assured. You don't have to convince anybody to do it, right? If you, if you come up with a solution that can actually do that and people see what's in it for me, they want to do it. You don't have to pay them huge amounts of money to pilot with you. You don't have to, you know, compensate by increasing cost slash revenue somewhere else. You, you really can bring people along much more easily. And so, and so the, the design process is more involved and painful, but the adoption and deployment process is much easier. So uh, I think we do a good job with that. And then the third um, rule, if you will, that we follow, and this is particularly germane to an organization that's in a very traditional business, right? We do R&D um, yep. and, and we, we develop, we an M&A strategy as well, but we develop minimally invasive therapies in the condition areas where we know we can make a big splash. And we bring those through the, the approval process and then we commercialize. That's what we do. That's what we've done for, for several years. We're really good at it, right? But we're not, we're new to, we're not as, as expert at this whole digital world. And so we acknowledge that and we, we follow two very tough rules that, that I think are, are unique for a corporation in a traditional business doing digital innovation. And the first is, unless we absolutely have to, we don't build it ourselves. We, we know that there is somebody out there in the, in the global health ecosystem who's come up with a great idea or is better at engaging patients through a gamified app or is better at transmitting data from one place to another or is better at understanding how hospital systems work. And we go to them and we work with them. We don't build drug branded apps. So I think we do that particularly well. And then the second thing we're very rigorous with ourselves about is we have digital pilots that last for one year. We have one year to make it work. Now we can be modest in the scale of that pilot. It can be one experiment at one hospital looking for one particular outcome. But if we get there and it has value for payer, provider, and patient, then at the end of that year, it comes out of the digital team and goes into the commercial business. And if the commercial business isn't convinced, if they look at it and they say, I like that, that's nice, but I don't see how it helps my business or I don't see you know, how it would work at scale, then no harm, no foul. I mean, that's what we do. We're, we're sort of at the cutting edge trying to push the envelope and we're failing forward, right? Yes. But it doesn't keep going for years. We don't keep it in digital pilotitis, which is really unfair to your partners and vendors, until it just slowly dies a small death. We, we end it and we move on and we do something bigger and better. And what that really forces us to do is we don't become a, a digital skunk works off the side. We're really transforming the core and giving value back to the core because after a year, it has to go right into the business and it has to come out of digital. So, so I think what would you say? The, what would you say the numbers on that are, Amanda? You know, out of out of out of 10 projects that that make it that one year how many actually get adopted yeah so we're doing pretty well so far actually sometimes i get nervous i think i think we should be being bolder <laughs> and we should be you know doing even crazier things but uh but we have another section of the portfolio which is higher risk in which we do the the, the super experimental stuff but in our in our product-oriented pilots we're running at about two-thirds acceptance which is pretty good and that's really good Whoops. yeah yeah one of the um most recent successes uh that we just announced it was published at um, an academic conference, and, and we've done a, a sort of promotional campaign about it, is a partnership with the company Health Loop, which does excellent patient engagement um, and provider-patient communication uh, platform work. And we worked with them in our interventional oncology product, Therosphere. And in, we've, the, the joint relationship, remember I said before, you know, we never develop our own stuff. We go to the best and brightest, and that's definitely Health Loop. That's right. The joint collaboration is called IO Loop for interventional oncology loop. And we're going national with that very actively, and we've seen some fantastic outcomes. 
So yeah, that's Good that's for you guys. Example. Yeah, thank two, you. Two thirds is uh, is is an awesome uh, average. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty. It's, I'm pretty proud of it. That's pretty. That's pretty outstanding. Good for you. Um, and and so you know you've shared a lot of great things, Amanda. It, you know, I feel like oftentimes we learn more from our setbacks than our actual successes. What what would you say an experience or setback that you've had that's really taught you a lesson and and shaped the way that you do things now? Yeah, it's a fantastic question. I think I think the major challenge, and, and my colleagues, Robin and others, who also you know are sort of searching and pushing for a future world of healthcare in which we have better outcomes, all experience this. It's really hard. It sounds obvious to the point of being dumb, but I think it's worth saying. <coughs> Excuse me. It's really, really hard to live and strategize and operationalize in a future world when you have to deploy in today's. And I think my my most notable failures are the ones where it was a really great initiative for the organization in which I worked. It was the right thing for you know, the national insurance carrier that I worked for. It was the perfect thing for the academic medical centers that I worked for. It was the right thing to do for my, my med tech company today. But because it didn't yield value back to the other shareholders, not in a negative way, it didn't hurt them, it just didn't do anything for them, adoption was always going to be limited and the resulting business transformation was always going to be limited. It's, you know, you can, you can be really puzzled. And I see a lot of startup entrepreneurs actually who struggle with this, but this is a great thing. It helps diabetics manage their insulin, or it helps people not lose their feet to diabetic ulcers, or it helps people, uh, you know, get help when they fall. Why I'm making people healthier. Why on earth is this not more successful? And, you know, sometimes it's questions of clinical validity, validation and scale. And sometimes it's really just that in our system, you're not making anybody money. You're not, you're not saving a problem or solving a problem that has widespread appeal. It's really not bothering anybody but the patient. For and sure. Those are the really hard ones because that's the, they're straight failures. I'm not making an excuse and, and <laughs> blaming the system for my shortcomings, <laughs> but that's the toughest stuff because you know you're, you're sort of caught between two worlds. Like this didn't work today. It's going to be the right thing to do in the future. But how will I know how to do it unless I try today when I know it's going to fail? And I think being caught in 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 between two worlds like that can be very difficult. And and why I admire so much the uh, other corporate innovators and advocates like Robin and certainly the startup community, which is you know, just hammering away at that and refusing to take no as an answer. No, for sure. And Amanda, you know, <clears throat> I'm glad that, uh, that Robin introduced us because uh, you, get, you guys definitely have a, a good uh, relationship and kind of see things in your own way and, and really are doing some great things for the, for the system. And, and this message, you know, let it, let it be heard by the startup community, but also large companies in that I, I've seen fantastic technologies fall flat on their face because payers won't pay for them because there's no DRG code to reimburse. Right. Right. And, and if you're, if you're a, if you're a startup, uh, if you're a listener and you're a startup and you're investing your time, energy, money into developing a technology, be sure to learn from Amanda's takeaways here. Does it fit the three P's payer provider and patient? And if you have a, if you have a gap there somewhere, find a way to, 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 to bridge it. And if you can't, then you're going to have to pivot because the likelihood of it succeeding is probably very low. Yeah, I think, thank you for amplifying that message. I, I would give you one other example because <clears throat> I hear this one a lot. You know, often sure. I, will, I will be pitched a solution that involves modernizing or making more efficient a health insurance process, right? Okay. Uh, this will, it's an easier way for somebody to file, a doctor to file claims, or it's an easier way for, um, uh, an insurance company to process and organize claims or, you know, it always, it, it always comes with this idea that like there's this horrible friction in the system created by a healthcare uh, insurance company, a payer 
that won't pay or doesn't pay or has to go through a complex appeal process or it's an experimental and investigational or whatever it is. It's pre-authorization. It's terrible. We're going we're gonna to have a great tech solution that automates that. And my heart always breaks because that's exactly the business model of a private health plan. And it is the business model of a, a commercial for-profit health insurer, and it is absolutely the business model of a not-for-profit health insurer. They just don't have to pay taxes. That's the only difference. Right. And that model is that the, the, the business model that we have accepted as a society is a private insurer will raise premiums as high as the market will bear, and they will pay as few claims as the market will bear. That's literally how they make their profit. That is their fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders. It is nothing but insanity to go to that corporation and say, I'm going to help you make less profit. Why aren't you buying my solution? It, it, <laughs> right, right. You know what I mean? And so it's, am I justifying for-profit insurance? Absolutely not. But we as a society have accepted that way of paying for healthcare. So that's what we get. And the answer is not to go to a Fortune 50 company and say, disappoint your shareholders next quarter. The answer is to say, how can I also accommodate their business needs in my solution? And I just picked that one out because I think there's a particular blind spot around insurers. You know, everybody has a sense in their head that patients want to feel better and everybody has a sense in their head that doctors are trying to heal people, but people have less of a sense about the role that insurers play. And it's, it's, a, it's a very strong, important function that the other legs of the healthcare stool rely on. And if it's filled with antiquated systems that provide a lot of friction into the system and inconvenience other people, try to look at that as deliberate rather than that they're too stupid to know the difference. Because I don't think these massive companies that are doing very well under excellent management are too stupid to know the difference. I think it's probably a well-crafted business strategy. So instead of fighting reality, try to accommodate it. That that would be my my real-world application. Of that. <laughs> I think I love that. And 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 what's the what's the how on that, uh, Amanda? You know, for somebody looking to get more educated on that, you know, this would be more more probably the the startups than the than the big device companies. Uh, what, what would you what would you recommend to them to better understand this? Uh, and, you know, the payer part of it. Sure. So I would I would say that there there are three pieces of sort of the health plan world that, that people don't really get, um, or at least entrepreneurs trying to approach the space. Number one is that um, the people who work in, at health plans, at least based on my experience of, of working for the, the second largest insurer in the country, Aetna, is, you know, they're not healthcare experts. They, these people don't work in hospitals. They aren't physicians. They haven't studied the system. They work in insurance. It can be a lot of different kinds of insurance. It can be short-term disability or life insurance. Often you know, the, big, the big carriers sell a lot of different forms. And they tend to be experts in their particular area in which they work, but they're not looking at the entire system as a perspective. They're just, they're just looking at the mechanics of insurance, and those mechanics tend to be actuarial tables that show the expected medical cost of somebody over a year. So your solution needs to lower the medical costs of somebody in a year in a way that can be demonstrated by claims. That is what a health plan really wants to see. And there's actually a lot of great ways to get there, to prove that out, to have that effect. The second point that I'm going to make, which will help with that, is health plans know that they pay out a ton of money to doctors and hospitals and other healthcare providers for care. And they know that some of it is absolutely necessary and needed and great. And some of it is nonsense. They just don't know which is which, right? Mm -hmm. So any tool that will help them differentiate between this is a treatment plan that is really going to be effective for the patient and result in the outcomes I want versus this treatment plan is not the right fit for this individual and it's just throwing a lot of money at an intervention that won't work because the person can't sustain it or they don't want to do it or it's not their primary problem or whatever it might be. 
So anything that helps differentiate on a personalized basis what that person needs in terms of their care is probably going to make the dollars they're spending to deliver that care way more effective. And then the third piece is <coughs> to understand about, about health insurance companies is they have a profound interest in supporting their members' health. You know, people, people like to make fun of this and laugh and say, you know, the doctor is the only person that helps the patient, the insurance company is in the way. In fact, in many situations, it's directly the opposite. The doctor comes in at a very finite point in time, does one or two things, those things are extremely important, but does them and then drops out of the picture because they need to attend to a thousand other patients. Right. The insurance company and, and Optum is uh, the division of United that, that does all these services is a particularly integrated example of this, but you know, Aetna's care management program is enormously robust and, and particular. They have bevies of nurses and coaches and healthcare providers and therapists and people who do nothing but actually call their members and say, I want to talk to you about managing your diabetes, or it looks like you haven't picked up your meds, how can I help you? Or it looks like you've been to the emergency room six times in the last year. Let's, let's think about strategies where you can stay healthier and not go into crisis. They're actually doing those levels of intervention. They don't deliver direct care. They can't do that. But they're actually much closer to the sickest patients on a day-to-day -day contact basis than many people understand often mm -hmm. because the people who are sort of in this community in, in innovation and entrepreneurship are not super sick. So they're not receiving that level of attention, right? right? So it's blind to them. But I bet if they ask their grandmother or their great uncle, that person would be like, sure. And that calls me every day. And I talk to my nurse and like, you know, I complain about the weather and she tells me to take my meds and then we smile at each other. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, so there is a, a very, it's, it's, it's traditional. It's generally phone based, but there is a, a very strong direct link between for at least the sickest patients in care management between the insurance company and the patient and not enough, not enough solutions really leverage that. Wow. Well, Amanda, I just want to thank you for the depth that you that you've gone into and, and, and all the questions that we've gone through. And I just looked at the time and just like, I wish I had another hour here with you. Maybe we'll do a part two. <laughs> um, so what I'd like to do here and is, is, you know, ask you for a book that you recommend our listeners to to read. And then before we conclude, just have you share a closing thought and, and the best place where the listeners can get a hold of you. Fabulous. Okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, there's a ton of like really great reading out there about healthcare entrepreneurship and innovation. Um, there are some really classic books about how the healthcare system works in the United States. I, I, I'm totally, but Stephen Brill's book, um, which I can't remember the title of, it has a big pill on the front and it was his sort of expose of where the money goes in healthcare. Um, I'll get you the full title and, and, sure. and you can disseminate, but uh, that's a great look at the healthcare system, how we got here and what it is today. The book I'm going to actually recommend though, and this is, this is the one point at which I'm actually going to get a little, a little political, a little political. Okay. Uh, and I'm going to loop it back to where I started when, when I was a kid before I got into organic chemistry. Um, for a part of the healthcare system that we haven't discussed and most people ignore, but is, is a part of the system that has been preventing death and suffering using a fraction of the dollars that we usually spend to do that is the nation's public health infrastructure. And for a riveting read about how that works, not a boring public administration textbook, I'm gonna refer all the listeners to Randy Schultz and the band Played On, which was about the, the discovery and understanding of the AIDS epidemic in the 80s in the US. Mm -hmm. And it is, he's a journalist, it's, it's a great read. It reads kind of like a horror story, frankly. Um, I find it very inspiring, but what you, what you learn are the rules, or I'm sorry, the, the roles that the Centers for Disease Control and the public health institutions in cities and states really play in helping us all not die. And I, so in my one political sort of message, I will say, we spend a lot of time talking about private doctors, private insurers, and private employers. We don't 
pay as much attention to the public health infrastructure as we really need to do. So, so that's my book recommendation. Very interesting. And the band played on by Andy Schultz. Randy Schultz. Randy, Randy Schultz. Ra yeah. Randy. Okay, you got, got it. it. Randy. Fan fantastic. I'm definitely going to add that one to mine, Amanda. It uh, sounds like a very interesting um, book and, and one that kind of goes really kind of hand in hand with, with, your, with your thoughts about uh, taking a look at the broader perspective, the macro instead of the micro uh, as we look to the upstream and downstream of taking care of our patients. And so before we conclude, just want to open up the microphone to you one more time here to share a closing thought and then the best place where the listeners could get a hold of you. Thank you so much. So let me, let me do the second part first before I forget. Okay. <laughs> so uh, the best place um, to find me is uh, on LinkedIn. Um, I'm under, under Amanda Goltz at BTG. That, it, that's me. It's linkedin.com backslash a Goltz, A-G-O-L-T-Z. Um, so I respond to my messages there. It's, it's probably the best way to get a hold of me. Um, or I'm on Twitter at a Goltz. Uh, so you can feel free to tweet at me, follow me there. Um, so that's probably the two easiest, quickest, best ways that are most accessible to all. Uh, and then on the, on the final note, you know, I'll just, I'll just briefly say, um, and I think we should do a part two where you should sort of like limit my responses to 30 seconds <laughs> and see what I do. No, uh, but it's been great. I'll tell you. And, and yes, I think I absolutely would love to have you back on because today's been a really, really fun episode. A lot of huge value that you've, you've provided. So fantastic. So I would just leave everybody with this one thought, which is that these, these problems seem systemic, daunting, built in, you know, that's why we need the best minds to be working on them. The challenge really requires our, our best thinking and our best effort. That's, that's what makes it great. Uh, and I, I would just encourage everybody to, to stick with it and keep trying things and we will get there. This is, you know, I think the most, one of the most important things to be working on, as you said, it's, it's bigger than all of us. Um, and so I, I want to end on a positive note that, that despite all the challenges that I've illustrated, I really believe we can all solve this with our best ideas. I truly believe that. Awesome, Amanda. Well, hey, I believe that too. And that's why we're having this conversation. So I just want to invite the, the listeners to, if, if anything in, in this episode struck a chord with you, please feel free to reach out, make a comment on the episode. You could go to outcomesrocket.com, search in the, in the bar, Amanda, you'll find all the show notes and any of the resources that we've discussed. And uh, that's uh, all we have for you today. Amanda, thank you so much for, for spending time with us. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Get excited for Health 2.0's 11th Annual Fall Conference and save $100 with this promo code, FALL17ROCKET. That's F-A-L-L-1-7-R-O-C-K-E-T. At this one-of-a-kind conference, you'll discover the latest innovation and hear the hottest topics and trends in health tech. Join 2,000 decision makers, including healthcare providers, developers, investors, and startups. As they gather to see over 200 live product demos, 100-plus thought leaders, and 10 new company launches. Visit outcomesrocket.com slash health20. That's outcomesrocket.com slash health20. And use promo code FALL17ROCKET to get $100 off of this outstanding and exciting event. Thanks for listening to the Outcomes Rocket podcast. Be sure to visit us on the web at www.outcomesrocket.com for the show notes, resources, inspiration, and so much more.